Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it can therefore be seen as a microcosm of European history. In this city, you can listen as the city grows from the Roman times up until the present time. Before we get into the episode, here's some housekeeping I have to do. I noticed two small errors in the last episode about Heribert. The Archbishop Heribert was not captured by the Bavarian Duke and later Emperor Henry when he brought the late Otto III to Cologne after his death. It was Heribert's brother that got taken hostage. In this way, Henry successfully blackmailed Heribert into handing over to him the insignia of rule of the empire, which were in Heribert's possession after Otto's death. And at some point, I accidentally said, in the year 2000-something, but of course I meant 1000-and-something, because we're still in the high middle ages and not in the 21st century. So much for that housekeeping. But what is this episode about? Well, about an ugly archbishop, a day in court in the cathedral courtyard of Cologne, about a particularly coveted coin from Cologne and how Cologne managed to wrest the coronation rights from the Archbishopric of Mainz in the 11th century, and what that meant for the city. On to the intro. Archbishop Heribert had died in 1021. As mentioned in the last episode, Emperor Henry II and the chief shepherd of Cologne Heribert had not really gotten along well. After all, Heribert had once favored another rival to the throne. With Heribert's death in 1021, Emperor Henry II finally had the opportunity to fill the now vacant bishop's post in Cologne with a man who was well disposed toward him. This man was called Pilgrim. He came from a noble family from Bavaria, the dynasty of the Aribones, who held powerful offices in the empire at the beginning of the 11th century. Pilgrim was the cousin of Archbishop Aribo of Mainz, who, as chance would have it, also took up his episcopal office there in 1021. Pilgrim's career path to the bishop's chair in Cologne is familiar for our ears now. Like almost all his direct predecessors, Pilgrim had previously been a high ecclesiastical official, first in an archbishopric, in this case of Bamberg, and then in the court chapel of the emperor. There he was the chancellor of the emperor and had been given important tasks by him for the Italian part of the empire. Sounds pretty familiar if you ask me. Of course it was obvious that Pilgrim was elected as the new archbishop by the will of Henry II in Cologne in 1021. At that time, the emperors of the empire were still completely free to determine the appointment of the imperial bishops. But Cologne would not be Cologne if there were not a little legend about the installation of Pilgrim as the new Cologne archbishop. The saga goes something like this. When Heribert was on his deathbed in 1021, the old archbishop muttered to himself in Latin. Shortly before his last breath, he said that a stranger in Latin pilgrimis would take his place as successor. 
Hilbert died shortly thereafter and was buried in Deutz in the monastery he had founded. So Emperor Henry II traveled to Cologne with his entourage to select the new, next archbishop. But as once in a similar saga with Charles the Great, Henry quickly found no one in the city who seemed worthy of him. So the emperor went to the then still small church of St. Apostles for reflection. Still deep in prayer for Henry was considered a very pious emperor who was even once to be canonized with his wife Kunigunde as the only German ruling couple ever. The emperor noticed that a simple man, a simple priest in the church, was saying his liturgy of the hours. My, is he ugly, Henry thought to himself. And indeed, the priest had an ugly face, was plump and was cumbersome. Well, body positivity didn't exist back then, sorry. And although the priest nevertheless made an extremely intelligent impression, the emperor repeated his thought that this was a really ugly clergyman. No sooner had Henry thought his thought in silence, because how could the priest be able to hear the emperor's thoughts, the priest spoke the following words in Latin. Quote, Scritote quoniam dominus ipset Deus, ipse fecit nos et non ipse nos. End quote. If I didn't pronounce it correctly, oh, please forgive me, my time machine to ask a person in ancient Rome for the correct pronunciation is still in the workshop. Translated, the priest had prayed at that moment, quote, You should know that the Lord himself is God. He himself made us and not we ourselves. End quote. The pious Emperor Henry had understood the Latin sentence immediately, since he himself had once been intended for a clerical career and had learned to read, write, and speak Latin. But then fate had prepared a secular career for him, right up to the, be the Emperor of the Empire. Now Henry was properly ashamed. Indeed, what could the priest do about it that he was so ugly? It had been indeed God who had blessed this clergyman with this face. Well, blessed, okay. Henry felt as if God had answered him directly through the priest in this moment, even rebuked him because of his mean thoughts. Then Henry knew who he wanted to be the next Archbishop of Cologne. That ugly priest right there in front of him. And his name was? I guess. Pilgrim, of course. And thus, the words of Heribert on his deathbed about a pilgrimus had come true. Of course, much of the legend is again only half correct. Pilgrim had not been a simple priest and canon in a Cologne monastery. Pilgrim had already been in service at Henry's imperial court for years, as he already learned, but so be it, that was the little saga of the ugly Archbishop Pilgrim. Let's take a look at the city again in the early 11th century. What did it actually look like around the Cologne Cathedral, the old Cologne Cathedral at that time? It looked completely different about 1,000 years ago, of course. Instead of today's Gothic cathedral, there was the Romanesque old Cologne cathedral that had been continuously expanded since the 9th century. In the meantime, 
the old cathedral now had five naves. Of course, this is also a clear indication that the population of the city had grown since 800 and or the flow of pilgrims to the city had increased immensely, which would have justified all these expansions to the cathedral. What is also different is that today the area around Cologne Cathedral, whether you find it beautiful or rather shabby, is largely an open space, whereas 1000 years ago the picture here was totally different. The entire area of the cathedral is surrounded by buildings on the west, south and east, which encircle the entire area like a protective wall, and in the north, the old Cologne Cathedral borders directly on the still existing Roman city wall. Only a few narrow entrances allow entry to the site. Well, let's go inside. We enter the site directly from the north gate of the city. Here is one of the few narrow entrances to the cathedral monastery. The cathedral monastery square opens up to us, which was actually a stift, but as you know, I am not making a difference between stift and monasteries anymore for easier understanding of this podcast show. Here on this square, it looks like a kind of medieval gated community. In addition to normal residential buildings, the residence of the cathedral provost is also located here. He is like the presidents of the Cologne Cathedral chapter and the most powerful clergyman around the cathedral. The monastery or Stift located here is the largest of its kind in the whole city and one of the largest in the empire. Once upon a time, the cathedral chapter had started out like a normal monastery of its kind, but the direct proximity to the bishop and his official seat here in Cologne have allowed the power and wealth of the cathedral chapter to grow continuously. Especially through the goods description of Archbishop Gunther from the year 866, which we have already discussed in the corresponding episode, shows this. The cathedral chapter is now well on the way to becoming a political player in its own right in the Archdiocese of Cologne. It would accumulate more and more power over time. Not far away, one day, in the Middle Ages, the cathedral chapter could even decide for itself who would become the new Archbishop of Cologne, and the Emperor or the Pope could no longer interfere with them about that. And today's Cologne Cathedral would be built from 1248 onwards, largely through the initiative and supervision of that Cologne Cathedral chapter. Likewise, south of the cathedral, the so-called Domhof in English Cathedral Square, there is the Archbishop's Palace. The Archbishop of Cologne resides in this palace or Pfalz, or leaves it to the Emperor when he visits Cologne. As mentioned before, the whole area of Cologne Cathedral was walled by the buildings of the cathedral chapter, the monastery, and the palace of the archbishop. Also, the court hearings take place on this area of the cathedral courtyard, south of Cologne Cathedral. You know what? I really have to create a little map about this Cologne Cathedral surrounding area. I will try to use my excellent... <coughs> graphic skills to illustrate that. You will find that on the historyofcologne.com, hopefully, in time, and on social media, of course, in Facebook and Instagram. Once a royal right, since Bruno in the middle of the 10th century, the respective Archbishop of Cologne has exercised urban jurisdiction over the city independently as the highest judge. 
You know, separation of church and state, let alone the separation of powers, are still a long way off. What did such a typical court hearing look like? The Archbishop of Cologne is allowed to exercise the formerly royal high justice in the city and is endowed with the king's man. Translated, this means the Archbishop of Cologne is the supreme boss. High justice means that the Archbishop is allowed to judge capital crimes. Capital has nothing to do at all with money or riches, but that it concerns here bad crimes. So also about particularly serious crimes on which death can stand as a punishment. But how does that go along with a priest being allowed to pronounce death sentences? Because after all, a bishop, an archbishop, is a priest. Well, not at all. This was also the opinion in the Middle Ages. But how does one get around the problem then? How can an archbishop pronounce death sentences which were necessary in the eyes of the time to enforce valid law when priestly ordination and canon law actually forbade this? Quite simple and pragmatic. One simply appoints someone to exercise all the king's ban and high justice, etc. in his place. This person was the Burggraf, who is certainly attested in the historical sources in the 11th century. We had briefly touched on this in an episode about Archbishop Bruno. The Burggraf, it cannot really be translated into English. If you directly translate it, it means something like castle count, but that's not really what he actually is. You know, count means that you have jurisdictional and secular power and Burg in German also meant not the castle itself, but a community of people living somewhere together. That could also be a Burg and not just be a castle, as it is nowadays in the German language, that a Burg always means a castle where some knight lives in. So let's just stick with the word Burggraf then, because there's no proper translation for that. This Burggraf came from the nobility and was the chairman of the courts and the official business in the city on behalf of the archbishop. The Burggraf also presided over the Witzigerding. He had topics in which honor, life and property were at stake. Translated into today's High German and then to English, Witzigerding would mean something like the expert court. And here the Burggraf, free of all canon law, in this expert court could order death sentences, mutilations and torture. Yay. The Burggraf is assisted at every court hearing by the so-called Schöffen, lay assessors, who advise him in reaching a verdict. But anyone who thinks that torture and death sentences were pronounced here every day because it's the dark, bad Middle Ages is mistaken. The Witzig-Geding court met here in the cathedral courtyard only three times a year. Today's courts can only dream of such a workload. I have often said that since Archbishop Bruno in the middle of the 10th century, the respective acting Archbishop of Cologne was the supreme city ruler. But of course the chief shepherd did not exercise all his offices alone. He also left many administrative tasks to his Burggraf. From the year 1061 on, there is even evidence of a city bailiff, a Stadtvogt, who took over administrative tasks in the city. Often this was in competition with the Burggraf, who argued over their 
respective areas of competence. We are still familiar with this today, aren't we, when politicians fight over competences. But even these two officials, the Burggraf and the Stadtvogt, the city bailiff, could not run the whole show by themselves. Cologne's population at that time was probably around 10 to 15,000 on the approximately 100 hectares slash 250 acres of city land within the city walls. Mostly in a confined space, especially in the harbour district close to the Rhine. Therefore, the archbishop additionally appointed the so-called ministerials, archbishop servants who helped to enforce the political will in the city. These ministerials could probably make a good living from their tasks and lived in richly furnished stone houses in a city while the homes of most people were built of half-timbering. I really want to talk more about population groups, occupational groups and the people themselves in Cologne, but that will have to happen another time, especially when we have enough historical evidence to do so. But coming soon, I promise. Considering that the Archbishop was also the chief shepherd of the people of Cologne in all spiritual matters, it is fair to say that the Archbishop was the boss in all matters concerning the people of the city. And it was convenient for the Archbishop that he had all these representatives working for him, officials and so on. For even though he was the supreme city ruler of Cologne, he was also an imperial prince by the grace of the emperor and had to perform services. Right in his third year of service, for example, in 1023, Archbishop Pilgrim, mentioned at the beginning, led part of the imperial army in southern Italy against the cities of Capua and Salerno, which he successfully conquered, thus reducing the influence of the Byzantine Empire in the region, all very far, far away from Cologne. What was going on really in the city of Cologne at that time was hardly something he could comprehensively monitor from near the tip of Italy's boot. But not only that, Pilgrim expanded the importance of the Cologne Archbishopric for the imperial court even further. Pilgrim received two privileges from the emperor during his 15-year term of office, which were in part to remain in effect until the end of the empire at the beginning of the 19th century and thus also benefited the city of Cologne in the long term, which these were, we learn, after a short pause for breath. Emperor Henry II died in 1024, meaning that the Ottonian dynasty, which Henry I had founded, had died out. Now the Salians succeeded him, who had their power base in the southern Rhineland near Worms and Speyer. Both cities owe their magnificent imperial cathedrals, which can still be visited today, to this circumstance because of that new dynasty coming from that region. Worms Cathedral, I know the name is funny, is impressive as is Speyer Cathedral, which is the largest surviving Romanesque church in the world today, and not far away from Cologne, so if you're close to the Cologne region one day, or if you even live here, take the train or your car and drive down there. It's just, I think, one and a half hours. And the best thing about this transfer of rule to the Salian dynasty, it happened relatively, bloodlessly. Of course, not without friction, of course, but 
as I said, largely without bloodshed. The new king and then emperor and first of the Salians was Conrad II. It was unfortunate though that Archbishop Pilgrim had initially backed the wrong horse and had not originally spoken out in favor of Conrad II as the new ruler. But unlike Hiribert before him, who had once made a similar mistake, Pilgrim quickly got his chance not only to reconcile with the new ruler, he would even promote the Archbishopric of Cologne to the top of the empire. How did this come about? Well, let's take a brief look at the imperial church of the 11th century. The three largest and most powerful archbishoprics at that time in the empire were Trier, Mainz, and of course Cologne. All three had one thing in common. They were all Roman foundations and thus had a good starting advantage into the early Middle Ages after the turmoil of the so-called migration period. As Augusta Treverorum, once being the capital of the Western Roman Empire in the 4th century, as Mogonciacum, once being the capital of the Roman province of Upper Germany, and of course our Colonia Agrippina, once the capital of the Roman province of Lower Germania, these three episcopal cities could fall back on proven infrastructures and networks. In the meantime, new archbishoprics had appeared on the scene, such as Magdeburg or the bishopric of Bamberg, founded during Pilgrim's lifetime by his patron Henry II. But no archbishopric could claim such a long history and thus legitimacy at the head of the empire as the first three mentioned, Trier, Mainz and Cologne. But which of these three was the highest archbishopric or the most important one? Well, there were heated arguments about that from time to time in the past. Under Otto I in the 10th century, the archbishopric of Mainz was clearly ahead. With numerous suffragan bishoprics and royal donations, it was virtually the head of the German church. Mainz had also prevailed in the dispute to be able to claim the right of coronation for herself in the empire. Much to Cologne's annoyance, since the preferred coronation site of Aachen was actually in Cologne's church province, more precisely in the bishopric of Liège. But now, in 1024, the year when the Salians took over the reigns of the Holy Roman Empire, at the top, the opportunity presented itself for Cologne. It was a standard procedure that now the Archbishop of Mainz would anoint a new elect king. While the Archbishop of Mainz, Aribo, remember Pilgrim was his cousin, had anointed the king, yes, but he had refused to anoint and crown his wife Gisela as queen. Conrad was outraged by this. and. So the refusal of the Archbishop of Mainz was the chance for Cologne. Immediately, Pilgrim picked up the phone and called Conrad. So, hey, if you want your wife to be crowned queen and anointed, I would do it. Just give me some privileges and some stuff in return. I hope you know that there were no telephones back then. This was just an example of bad German humor. Conrad agreed to the plan. And so Pilgrim used a visit of Conrad II in Cologne three weeks after his election as king to fulfill his wish. In front of the assembled court of Conrad, many high nobles and important clergymen of the empire, Pilgrim crowned and anointed Gisela as queen of the empire in the old Cologne Cathedral in September 
1024. Fun fact, the Archbishop of Mainz had probably had good reasons to refuse the coronation of Gisela. Gisela and Conrad were much too close relatives in his eyes because both could trace back their lineage to Henry I. But don't ask me in which way exactly all these entanglements of nobles are much too complicated for me, even nowadays. Perhaps you are wondering about the terms king and emperor. I'm talking about an empire, but I'm still talking about a king sometimes, and sometimes I call him an emperor. King and emperor, these are two different titles, and yet I use them here almost as synonyms. That is also seen as almost right and just as wrong. Too complicated? It doesn't have to be. Let me try to explain. Think of it like a bachelor's and master's degree. First you do the bachelor's degree, that's being a king, and then you add the master's degree, that's being an emperor. Regardless of this, you already have a university degree with the bachelor's and or master's degree. Same is that when you are a king, you are already the ruler of the empire. But as the master's degree is more or less a consolidation of the scientific studies you have done during your career, the emperor title is also like the same thing. It says that you're even now a bigger ruler now. You're more into it. And precisely the title of emperor is the master's degree for the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. You are already a full integrated ruler as being the king of the empire, but you also want to get that master's degree. In the meantime, it had become customary to be crowned king of the empire first as being called the Roman German king. The attribute Roman to this king title alone indicated that the ruler also intended to become pretty soon the Roman emperor as well, a title that Otto I had claimed for the Holy Roman Empire since the year 962, at least in Western Europe. And this would remain so until 1806. So again, to write it down, first the ruler of the empire became the Roman German king, elected at an election assembly of high nobles and clergy, in waiting, so to speak, to become emperor. The imperial dignity was then, most of the time a few years later, awarded by the pope, sometimes directly shortly after, or only after marching with an army to Rome itself, and ask nicely knocking on the doors of the Lateran palace if you understand what I mean. But you must not think that the title of emperor was an increase in directional power. It was just the icing of the cake, but in the world of the Middle Ages, emperorship was important in the eyes of the contemporaries. It was also associated with the claim to be the supreme Christian rulers. It was better to be emperor than just a king, like in France or England. So the imperial crown was put on by the Pope. That had been certain since Charles the Great in 800. But who put the royal crown on the ruler becoming king before that had been, as I said, a long dispute in the empire. But for a long time now, Mainz had won. With the coronation of Gisela in 1024 by the Cologne archbishop, this changed in the long term. For in 1027, Conrad II also managed to obtain the title of emperor from the Pope, according to the process I just described to you earlier. Once the title of emperor was in the bag, 
it had become fashionable for the reigning ruler to have his heir to the throne elected king and crowned as well, as co-regent and quasi as emperor-to-be, so that there was at the same time the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and the king of the Holy Roman Empire, so the junior waiting in line to become the next emperor. And here, also in 1028, Archbishop Pilgrim of Cologne crowned the son of Emperor Conrad II as king and thus as co-regent as King Henry III. Thus the rite of coronation had passed completely from Mainz to Cologne. And in 1052, the papal blessing was also given that from now on, Cologne would hold this rite. Pooh, a little bit complicated subject, I have to admit. I thought this was way easier to explain. I hope I got that right for you. But remember, in a largely literate society, public gestures and ceremonies in public were more important than one might think today. Although, if I think about it, these are still effective today. Be it the installation of a new head of government with a ceremony, a wedding celebration or a funeral, or very specific gestures of a special kind in the recent past, such as Willy Brandt's unexpected but powerful genuflection in Warsaw in Poland in 1970, when the West German Chancellor in this way completely non-verbally asked for forgiveness for German crimes during the Second World War a gesture that earned him the Nobel Peace Prize a year later. But again to the Middle Ages. The right of coronation for Cologne was an enormous gain in prestige. This was also expressed in the fact that Pilgrim provided his documents with a large and heavy lead bulls. Bull? That has nothing to do with a bull with horns. Bulla comes from Latin and means bubble. Originally, the bull actually meant the whole document together with the attached round seal made of lead or optionally gold. To provide a document with such a large bull seal, this was actually only done by kings at that time, emperors and popes. In this case, this was an expression of how the Archbishop of Cologne saw his own increased position in power. I hope to find a royalty-free image of a bull of pilgrim including a parchment document, but I can't promise anything. If I find one, I will of course post it on social media and the homepage. But back to the Cologne riots to coronate the new king. From now on it was usually the case that the king was crowned and anointed in Aachen by the Archbishop of Cologne. Then all those people present, like um, noblemen, archbishops, bishops, usually went directly to the neighboring city of Cologne to make a big party. And having a big party with the king and archbishops and bishops and noblemen now and then really improved Cologne's status as the most important city of the empire. It was already the biggest city in the empire anyway with population. Pilgrim was also able to win the office of Archchancellor of Italy permanently for the incumbent of the Cologne bishopric through his now good relations with the emperor. This was to become extremely important for Cologne's further history in the middle of the 12th century. One result of this can still be seen today shimmering prominently in gold in Cologne Cathedral. But that's all I'm going to tell you for now. We'll get to that 
when the time comes. Last but not least, Pilgrim was also granted permanent minting rights for Cologne and Andernach, a beautiful town in today's northern Rhineland-Palatinate, a state in Germany. A mint had already stood in Cologne on the Heumarkt before, remember. Now, however, the archbishops of Cologne were free to mint coins as they pleased. This was actually a royal right until then. The so-called Cologne Penny, which was minted here in the city, had since been found almost everywhere along Cologne's trade routes during archaeological excavations, even as far as the Baltic Sea region. The fact that the Cologne Penny was so popular and widespread shows the economic prosperity that had begun in Cologne and how much long-distance trade had intensified. On the coin was usually the face of the respective archbishop and on the reverse is noted the place of minting, in this case usually, quote, colonia urbs, end quote, translated from Latin, therefore simply, city of Cologne. A nice advertising effect for Cologne in times where there are no advertising spaces like billboards, flyers or annoying video ads in front of a streamed video. These coins where Cologne's name is on are the best promotion for the city. Quickly, the Cologne penny becomes one of the most popular and most used means of payment in the empire. I myself have once recently seen a Cologne penny from the reign of Archbishop Pilgrim in the Cologne Cathedral Treasury. I'll upload a post about it on social media in the next few days, including a photo of the coin, of course. And this Cologne penny will be part of the companion post on thehistoryofcologne.com. Have a look. Also during Pilgrim's reign, there seems to have been famines in the countryside around Cologne again. This says a legend about a following event. Perhaps in the year 1034, during this famine, Pilgrim enacted a strict fast to appease God and the saints, so that the drought would finally end and that crops could grow again. But nothing helped. Then Pilgrim remembered that his predecessor Heribert himself, who was venerated already as a saint by the people of Cologne immediately after his death, had been a great crisis manager during famines before, as discussed in the episode before. At the head of a big procession, Pilgrim crossed the Rhine to Deutz with the shrine of St. Severins and made a pilgrimage to Heribert's tomb in the abbey church there. Pilgrim prayed, begged and pleaded with Heribert to put in a good word for him in heaven. And lo and behold, when the procession was back on the Rhine, by ferry, on its way back to the city, clouds gathered rapidly and it began to rain in the Rhineland. Heribert's long shadow also lingers in other places in Cologne. During Pilgrim's time in office, the new church of St. Apostles was consecrated in 1024. Thus Cologne now had another large and imposing church in the west of the city, directly in front of the still existing Roman city wall. Forty canons now found their place here in the monastery on today's Neumarkt. But the canons there probably continued to see Heribert as the true founder of the church and monastery and not the currently reigning pilgrim. Every year the canons of St. Apostles would make an annual pilgrimage to Deutz on the other side of the Rhine to honor 
their founder, Heribert. Pilgrim, in turn, probably nevertheless considered St. Apostles to be his own foundation. When he died in 1036, he had himself buried in the west choir of the building. This place is usually reserved for very important persons, so putting himself there means that he thought he was the true founder of this church. Pilgrim is still buried there today. In the meantime, however, his grave is located now in the southern transept of St. Apostles, since the church itself was extremely expanded during the following course of the Middle Ages. But you can still pay him a visit if you want. So, now Cologne also has another rich and influential church with a monastery slash convent. Great! So, enough for today, at least as far as today's topics are concerned. I want to be honest with you. You know, this podcast is my hobby, my passion, in the evenings and on weekends, as I always like to say at the end of an episode. In the past, I had always produced three episodes in advance. I had always imposed this buffer of episodes on myself so that I can produce the next episode in peace and harmony and not having that schedule in my neck. But in the last three months alone, so much has happened in my life that I'm surprised I've even managed to research, plan, record, edit, publish and promote a new episode at the usual three-week interval. In the process, I dropped out for a few weeks a while ago because my appendix called in. Thanks for that. Don't worry, I will not try to overshare here but that appendix knocked me out for some time. My usual buffer of three episodes was now gone. Then I had a job change and other events in my private life, even though they were quite nice, but they took up all of my free time. So what I'm saying is, let's just take a breath for a while. Give me please six weeks to do so. In that time, I'll continue to work on the next episode, but now I want to have six weeks for that and not just three as it used to be. I'd like to have a little more time to do it. And I would also like to use at least one week of that to have a nice vacation. And yes, that also means not dealing, thinking about the podcast, but going out into nature sometimes, keeping fingers away off the phone and have a Bavarian beer hopefully down in southern Germany. That sounds really nice. I'm looking forward to that. So the next episode would actually have come out on July 25th, but this one is postponed to the 15th of August. But I'm thinking about adding something casual in between, which I could maybe bring out on July 25th instead, maybe some sort of revisited episode where I talk totally freely about something like, it's been over two years since the first episodes of my podcast. In that time, I've learned a lot about, for example, Cologne's Roman era that I didn't put into the episodes back then. Maybe that would be an idea to talk casually about that. Or maybe I can think of someone I could interview and I have no idea who I should talk to. And of course, this interview better be in English because otherwise you would not understand it. And... I have to really 
look and find someone who is fit in the English language to talk about a topic like history. Or if you have an idea what I could do instead of a regular episode, well, I would be happy. Write me an email or write me on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. I would be really happy about that. This a little pause, I think, is, I think it's a good time. It's the peak of summer right now. Many of you have vacations and hopefully the opportunity to go on vacation. From my own experience, the statistics for podcast downloads drop slightly during this time anyway. As I said, people are on vacation and not sitting on the way to work with headphones in their ears listening to podcasts. And thematically, this little pause is also a good time. Because soon we will probably get to know the most notorious Archbishop of Cologne, Archbishop Anno II. But not only his biography is exciting, everything around his time is interesting, what is developing in the city as a whole. For the first time during his time in office, the Cologne city population, the people living here, they become more tangible in the sources than ever before, partly even with names. Anno himself is an urban planner, too, who had a major impact on Cologne cityscape up until today. His tenure also allows us to finally talk about the people in general in the city, about merchants, Christians, Jews, Frisians, Scandinavians, monks, farmers, local nobility, economy, topics, and so on. All of this requires good preparation to kick off Cologne's period in the High Middle Ages. And I can finally take this time now. I look forward to welcoming you again, hopefully. In the meantime, you can just start all over again with the history of Cologne and listen to the first episode. The running time of this podcast with all the published episodes is certainly already around 40 hours of listening time or more. Thank you very much for your understanding that I take this little break Feel free to recommend me, take care, and see you in six weeks at the latest. Auf Wiedersehen.